our scripture passage for today. And uh, we are looking at Exodus 32, 1 to 14. Exodus 32, 1 to 14. And uh, my name is John, one of the pastors here, and we are glad to have you worshiping with us uh, on this Lord's Day. So Exodus 32, starting in uh, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then he said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival for the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone, so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, Why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought up out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out? To kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth. Turn from your fierce anger. Relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land, I promise them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would speak to us today. Lord, you know our hearts. You know the heart of everybody that is here. And we pray that through the power of your spirit, you would speak your words of life into our souls, into our hearts, so that we would, through your word, be built up to look more and more like Jesus. Father, only you can do this, and we ask that you would. And it's in Christ's name we ask these things. Amen. Well, probably like many of you, the new year comes around and it brings some uh, motivation for new goals. And this year, I'm turning 40, which is kind of hard to believe, but gave me even some extra motivation for, you know, what goals do I want to achieve the year I turn 40? And for a number of years, uh, every year, I've ridden my bike up Butterfield Canyon. Uh, It's probably one of the hardest canyons to ride up, but it's beautiful, and I, I love it. And because I'm turning 40, I thought it would be a great goal to ride up it faster than I did in my 30s. And so I'm going to have to do a lot of training, but I also recognized I'm also 
going to have to slim down because the worst thing, you know, the, the greatest thing to keep you from riding up fast is carrying some extra luggage. And so I needed to lose a little bit of weight because somewhere between 30 and 39 and a half, where I'm at right now, I realized I can't continue to eat whatever I want and it makes no difference. It eventually catches up with you. Now, this has been a struggle for me because if you know me well, you know I also love ice cream. I'm a sucker for ice cream. And so I find myself in this tension, right? Do I cruise up Butterfield Canyon or do I enjoy ice cream? And the problem with this, Lisa and I were just talking about this the other night, moderation is so hard. We're like, it's actually harder to just have a small serving of ice cream than a bowl, than no ice cream at all, because it feels like an insult to the ice cream maker to not just, you know, have a little tiny bit of it. Now, I bring this up because I talk about these desires in my heart. And one of the things about our culture today is that we are told that truth is what is found within you. Your desires are your truth. Be true to yourself. Follow your heart. And this sounds great, but it doesn't work very well because our hearts are full of all kinds of mixed desires. And many of them are actually in conflict. My heart, I picture it like a classroom full of desires, and every one of them is stretching their hands up high and saying, pick me, pick me, pick me. And the question is, which heart do I follow? The heart that says, man, it would be awesome to go up Butterfield Canyon faster than I ever have. Or the heart that says, but it also is really great to eat a big scoop of Rockwell's ice cream at the end of the day. What heart is most true to me? We're quick to trade in long-term good for immediate gratification. That's part of those conflicting desires, right? I want this right now because it'll feel good, but man, I want this thing, but it seems so far away. And every one of us, we struggle with that. We know there are things in our life that I need to stop this, but you say, tomorrow. We might be worried that we're addicted to something, but we then convince ourselves, that's not too bad, I can manage it on my own and so you never seek the help you need. You have sin in your life, but you don't try to get rid of it, you negotiate it, because when you're honest, you kind of like how it feels. And sometimes, you just do something you never thought you would be doing, and you fail big time. You screw up, you fall off the cliff, and you hate yourself for it. See, we are this mix of desires and mix of failures in our life. And what I want us to remember this morning, though, is that when we fail, God is faithful. Even when we want to do the very opposite thing of what God tells us to do, God is faithful to his people. And we're going to look at this just under two points. Our failure, God's faithfulness. So our failure. If you remember back to Exodus 24, Moses reads Israel, who's all surrounding him, God's law that has just been given. Remember, God's law is like the blueprints for his beautiful community. God's like, I'm going to make a nation that is a model to the world of what life should look like. And here are the blueprints. And Moses finishes reading that law, and then all the people respond with one voice, it tells us. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. It's like they're on day one of their New Year's diet, and they are ready to follow it to the T. And then God says, okay, great, they're ready By the way, as you all know, one of the things that God tells them not to do is to make an idol. (laughs) We're ready. We'll not make an idol, God. 
So then God tells Moses, hey, Moses, come up to the mountain and meet with me. So Moses goes up. He brings his aide, Joshua, to come up with him. And that is where Moses gets all these detailed building instructions for the tabernacle, which are the six chapters we looked at last week. But before Moses goes up the mountain, he turns around to his brother Aaron and says, Aaron, wait here until I get back. It's like he's giving the babysitter instructions. Here's what to do while the kids, I'm away from the kids, you've got it. You take care of them. Now, Aaron didn't know it at the time, but Moses is going to be gone for 40 days, which is a long time to wait. And the people start getting antsy. They're like kids on a road trip, right? When are we going to be there, Dad? And we just left five minutes ago, right? And they start getting more antsy and more antsy. And each day passes, and there's more rumors spreading through the camp. And it's easy to pick on the Israelites for what they do, but, but just consider some of, of what all was going on here. First, Moses never told them how long he was going to be gone, which always makes waiting harder, right? Well, I just thought it'd be a day, two days. Comes a week, another week. How long is he going to be gone? Then remember, what is the description of the top of that mountain where Moses has gone? It said earlier, it's covered in a thick cloud, and the glory of the Lord settled on it, which looked like a consuming fire. The people kind of wondered, Moses is walking up there? Like, is he going to survive this thing? Several other commentators note that also this may have been Moses' first night away from the Israelites. Right? It's like the first time you get out of the house after having your, a new kid. It was the first time of separation, and that just leads to more anxiety for everybody. And so rumors start to circle through the camp. Well, you know what? I I thought I heard screaming up there the other night. Another person says, I've heard he's he's already dead. Another person says, I I think he's just, he's ran away. He's done with us, and he's headed off to retirement. He doesn't want to deal with this anymore. And so the people can't handle it any longer, and they go to the second in charge, Aaron. Aaron, what are we going to do? We're out here in the middle of the desert, and our guide, Moses, has just bailed on us. And we can't stay out here. Maybe he ran away. Maybe he was killed. Whatever. We can't live out in the desert forever. We've got to get moving. And like ancient people, they needed gods to go with them, to protect them. And so they asked Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. And in our modern culture, we have trouble understanding, why do they care about this thing? It seems so primitive, yet... I think maybe a very helpful way to think about this is that for ancients, their gods were like our cell phones, right? Imagine going and say, hey, go on a trip from here to L.A. and don't take your cell phone. Hey, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to read a map. I don't know (laughs) any of these other things that we're so used to using our cell phone for, right? What if I break down? What if I get a flat tire? What if I need to eat or need gas, right? The gods for the ancients were their lifeline. They were their protection. They were their guides. They were their GPS. They were the ones that navigated, helped them navigate through these tough times. Aaron, we need someone to help us get through this. And so Aaron caves to the pressure and he says, all right, well, take off your gold earrings that your wives and your sons and your daughters have and bring them to me. Now, where does all this jewelry come from? Remember, these people were slaves in Egypt. But if you remember, as they were leaving... One of the things that God did is he opened up the hearts and the arms of the Egyptians so that they actually gifted the Israelites all of their jewelry and their gold and many of their prized possessions, and Israel walked out as kings. And so now they are taking this jewelry 
that was a gift from their God and using it to build something that is incredibly offensive to the God that gave it to them. And you might also notice there's several similarities in how this passage begins with chapter 25, which we looked at last week, where it opens up and God says, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive an offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them, gold and silver and bronze, and it goes on. What we have here is kind of a tale of two offerings. There's the offering that God says, here's what you're going to do. Here's how the people, they're going to bring this, and this is going to fund and build our new home together. And at the same time, while God is making these plans, the people are down at the bottom of the mountain taking up their own offering to make this golden calf, which was what was supposed to be used to build the home that God would live with them in. You see how much this strikes at the heart of this relationship. It is a deep, the deepest betrayal. So Aaron takes that gold and makes it into a a golden calf and sets it up, and what is the people's reaction? Well, they love it. They all yell, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. And Aaron is becoming quite the politician. He sees their enthusiasm, man, This is the most popular I've ever been. So he says, guess what, guys? We're going to have a party tomorrow to celebrate all of this. They're excited about the party. The text tells us they get up early. They're like kids on Christmas morning who are excited to to have a party and and open the presents. The, The calf was a very common idol in Egypt. And what it shows us is they were making gods like the gods they had just left in Egypt. And this is one of these questions that confounds so many people that have studied this passage. How are they so quick to turn their back on the God that saved them? Right? It's like Moses has just gone for a few weeks, and they're already moving on to somebody else. And not just move on, but go so far that it's like they're acting like he never even existed. And their God never existed. They point to that calf and say, oh yeah, this is the God that got us out of Egypt. They don't even say, oh yeah, Yahweh, you know, he's a great God to have if you, if you are, have a bully. He'll take care of bullies, but he's not the best God for leading you through the desert because he likes to rough it and, and we want some more food and shelter and all this stuff. We need a new God now. We're firing him, getting a new God. What do they say? And said, no, they don't even give thanks for all that Yahweh did for them in Egypt. They say, this is the new God. And what makes this all the more striking is that while this is taking place at the bottom of the mountain, at the top of the mountain, what is God doing? He's giving Moses the instructions for this home that he's building so he can be with his people. And they're betraying him. In the retelling of this story in Psalm 106, it gives us some insight into why are the Israelites so quick to change? And it says, they made a calf and worshipped an idol cast in metal. They exchanged their glorious God for an image of a bull which eats grass. They forgot the God who saved them, who had done great things in Egypt. I think what's going on here is they're facing the same conflict that you and I face every single day, the conflict of desires, a conflict between those great promises that God has made for their ancestors, I will make you into a great nation, and that promise of some immediate gratification to feel better. And which do we want? 
Well, that's a great promise. Oh, we would love to be a great nation, but that is a promise that will take generations to get there. And honestly, we're kind of scared out here in the desert. We're kind of alone. What good is the promise of a new home if we're going to die before we get there? And so what do they do? They trade that big promise that God has made for the promise of immediate gratification, of comfort, of some more candy. They exchange the glory of a God who parted the Red Sea for the glory of a good party, full bellies, and not feeling so alone tonight. And that is where we're not all that different from them, are we? Because every day in your life, you are tempted to trade the eternal promises of God for something that feels good right now. And maybe will at least soothe that pain in your life. Where does God feel like he's falling short in your life? Where are you tired of waiting on God to change things, and now you're just fed up and you're going to take it into your own hands? Where are you trading the eternal glory that God has promised his people for instant dopamine hits? See, that is what's going on in this passage. That is what these people are wrestling with. Yeah, that's great, but we just want to feel good right now. This life is hard. Where is that happening for you? They say, oh yeah, God's great, but he's not with me right now. He's not helping me in my need right now. And so you go out to build your own God, to do your own thing, to fix these things in your life. The seven deadly sins, which Christians talk about sometimes, they're not worse than some other sin, like unforgivable or anything like that, but they're called that because they're kind of like the seedbed of sin. Almost any other sin can trace its root back to these sins. And they give some helpful categories as you examine your own life and just run through them. Pride. What is pride? It's worshiping yourself instead of God. You find yourself always comparing yourself to others. You're always kind of grading your report card compared to how other people are doing how other people are doing in your boss's eyes or whatever, where do I fall out in the pecking list? Greed. What you really serve is money. And you show that you serve it by how much time you spend chasing it, how much time you spend thinking about it. Oh, if only I had this money, then I could do all these things. Covetousness. You're always wanting something new in your life. You're never content with the boundary lines of your own life, whether the boundary lines of where you live or your finances, the boundary lines of your health. Lust. This one's huge. It's not enjoying sex as it was designed uh, to be enjoyed by God, but twisting it into something which in the end is just about you, and if it feels good, do it. Envy. You can only celebrate someone else's success if it's a success you've already achieved. But if someone gets something that you haven't gotten that you really want, you're bitter. Gluttony. Either over-dependence on alcohol or seeking solace in food. You feel discouraged. And what's the best thing to do? I'm going to pop open a new uh, case of ice cream. Anger. How much of your free time is spent replaying in your mind how other people have wronged you? You're always mulling over what this person did, and you've got a whole list of grudges against people that you cannot forgive. And sloth. You're always looking for shortcuts in life. You're always complaining about how bad things are, but never actually doing anything to change it. You're looking for a way to somehow bypass the long, hard work of a career. And why do these sins arise? 
Well, so it's so often it's because we don't think God is enough. Like you're happy to follow God as long as he's doing all the things that you want, but as soon as he doesn't, you start to find some other way to get what you really want. And it turns out God was just a stepping stone to what your heart truly desired. Well, what do we do when we fail? Because we go through this, every one of us fails in these things, right? We turn to these things because we don't think God is enough. But even in our failure, he is faithful. So this is our second point. God knows everything that's happening down on the mountain, so he tells Moses, Moses, go down, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. And it's hard not to notice that second person, your people that you brought down, right? Like when one parent is speaking to the other parent about a child, do you know what your son did today? And then God says in verse 10, now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and I may destroy them. A number of folks have noticed similarities between the language that God uses here and the language that God uses way back in Genesis chapter 6, which is the story about when God brings the flood. God is threatening to do to Israel what the flood did to the world. Wipe everybody out and start over with someone new. In Genesis 6, it says, God saw how corrupt the earth had become. For all the earth, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. And then what's he promised? I'm going to start over with you, Noah. And now God is laying out the similar thing. Moses, they've all been corrupt. I'm going to wipe them out. And I'll start over with you, Moses. Rabbis would later refer to this episode as Israel's fall, using the same language of Adam and Eve in the fall and saying, this is where, this is pivotal in Israel's history. This is where God's second son, Israel, fell, just like Adam and Eve. And if you can picture this scene, God is burning up on top of the mountain. God is described as a consuming fire. And this was before he actually got angry. I mean, if you were Moses, if you are up there, what would your first instinct be? That sounds great, God. I'm going to run down and, and give you some space. I'm going to get out of here. In fact, this is what Moses is told to do by God. Moses, get out of here. This is going to get ugly. You're not going to want to see this. Let me take care of all this, and then you and I, we can just ride off into the sunset. Which is what makes what Moses does next all the more amazing. It's almost like Moses disobeys God. He doesn't leave. He doesn't walk away. Instead, he steps forward and argues with God. And this is incredible given what God has just offered to Moses. I'll destroy them and we'll start over with just you. And if I were Moses, if I were Moses I'd say, that sounds great because, you know, these haven't been the easiest people to work with. And here's my chance to get rid of them, get rid of these toxic people in my life, and just start over. But Moses does the impossible. Instead of backing away, say, yep, as you wish, God, he steps forward before an angry God, a consuming fire, and he mounts an argument. Lord, why should your anger burn against these people? Now, that seems pretty obvious why. He continues, why should the Egyptians say that you just brought him out with bad intentions to kill them in the mountains? This argument is interesting because Moses is telling God, God, what will the Egyptians think if you do this? Our reaction is like, why would God care what the Egyptian thinks? But Moses thinks God cares what the Egyptians think. 
Well, you know, God, he's great at saving them, but he can't win over their hearts. Maybe he's a God that just plays with people like a five-year-old plays with ants and has fun, and then when he's done, he'll, you know, kick it all around and kill them all. We might wonder, why does God care about this? Well, Moses goes on, Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land, I promise them. Moses is reminding God of the promises that he made to lead these stubborn people to their inheritance. And what Moses is saying is, God, will the Egyptians know you as a God who keeps his promises or as a God who quits when it gets tough? Will the Egyptians, will the world know you as a God who has a short fuse and just wipes people out left and right? Or a God who is true to his promises and will be merciful even when it hurts? As strange as this sounds to us, Moses here is like stepping up to remind God of who he is. This is who you are, God. This is your character. Like, can you imagine this scene? What is happening? Who is Moses to remind God of who he is, and yet he's doing it? And then verse 14, the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. And this is the part that challenges all of us. What does this mean? God changed his mind? Is God always angry and he needs someone to pacify him? If we just argue with him enough, he'll say, okay, I'll, I'll let it pass this time. You know, gives one more warning, guys. Here's one of the key things I want you to see. Every one of you have a breaking point when it comes to keeping promises. Take marriage. You make a vow to be with this person. And you say all those things that sound so great on your wedding day, and then it doesn't take very long to realize how much it hurts to love someone in sickness and in times of worse. And eventually that can get so hard that you say, I can't do it anymore. I can't keep getting hurt. I can't keep letting my heart get broken like this. I'm done. Every one of you, you have a line where a relationship hurts so much, whether with a spouse, a parent, a kid, a brother, a sister, where you say, you know, I still love you so much, but I can't keep getting close to you like this. I've got to have some space for my own life. You get to a breaking point point. you say, I can't handle this anymore. I'm done. It's over. I can't keep getting hurt like this. Friends, God doesn't have that line. God never gets to a point where he says, it's over. He never gets to a point who, where he says, this is going to kill me and I've got to get out of here. I know I promised this, but it is too hard. I've got to leave for my own safety. No matter how angry he gets, no matter how much it hurts, God always keeps his promises. God never says to his people, it's over. God never says, I'm moving on. God never says, I'm done with you. Why? Because God's promises are one of the most powerful things there are. He cannot break a promise he made. And sometimes we kind of half-jokingly ask, you know, could God make a rock so big that he can't pick it up? Maybe a better question is, could God ever make a promise 
so costly he won't keep it? And here's the answer, no. It's a resounding no, no matter how far he has to go. Now what do we make, though, of this idea of God relenting because of Moses' argument? What this shows us is actually something very profound about God. First, we need to realize you can't take any one verse or a couple of verses in Scripture and create a whole theology out of it. We have to use Scripture to interpret other parts of Scripture, and it all needs to harmonize. And in the next chapter, we have this interesting saying from God. Chapter 33, verse 19. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Moses, or God is reminding Moses, look, Moses, you can't convince me to be compassionate to someone. In the end, it's, all, it's my choice. I will do it on whom I want to do it to. Okay, so what does it mean back in 32 then? One Jewish scholar writes this, what I think is, and I think it's very helpful. He says, Moses isn't simply an exemplary human being before God. So what he means here is it's not like Moses is kind of providing an example to us of what a great Christian looks like. If you would just argue with God and stand up to him and do these things. Look at what could happen. Maybe there's some truth in that, but that's not the main focus. He goes on. What is Moses' role here? He acts as part of God before God. Now, what does that mean? He's, he's, he's stepping into this role. He is giving us a picture of God before God. How can we say that? Why? The, the scholar continues. Because he is a prophet. And what is a prophet's role? To speak God's words back to God. Moses is channeling God's very words and speaking them back to God himself. Because he's a prophet, he assumes part of this divine property so that one cannot properly pick out the full characterization or identity of God by only looking at what God says here. But who God is, is a combination of both what Moses and God says. So think about this. He's saying, if you want to look at God's character, you can't just look at God in this passage. You actually have to look at God and Moses because Moses is channeling God's words to show us this is who God is. This is God's justice and this is his mercy. And you almost need a, a prophet, a second person there to show us what it looks like. Moses is taking on the fullest meaning of what it means to be a prophet, to speak God's words, not to his people, as often a prophet does, but back to God, to show us something about God that we wouldn't see if it was just God speaking in this passage. It's almost as if God invites Moses to play this role, to show us a complete picture of his character, his justice and his mercy, and how it works in your life. So go back to Psalm 106, verse 23. So God said he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to keep his wrath from destroying them. Moses isn't just arguing with God. What is he doing? He, the psalm says he's standing in the breach. Moses has become this heat shield, to before that consuming fire to protect the people that are standing behind it. The fire, if you picture the scene, here is God, this even more consuming fire. Here is Moses, the heat shield, and here are the people who have no idea of what is taking place up here because of their sin. They haven't even asked for forgiveness or anything yet. 
And the fire doesn't make it down there because Moses stopped it. Moses took it. As we've been working through the, the book of Exodus, I've wondered, it's really interesting. Moses never makes it to the promised land, right? He, he dies at the boundary looking in. And I've wondered if one of the reasons this is, is if it's not connected to what we see here. Throughout his ministry, he was continually standing in the breach and absorbing the people's sins in a way that he had to die outside so that the people could go in and enjoy the promised land. And yet, though Moses doesn't suffer physically in this moment, or he doesn't come down with third-degree burns, but he is standing in the breach. But he's doing it in a way that is representing the greater one who did that. He's showing us what Christ did on the cross. That is where we see God against God. God reminding God of the promises he made to never let his people go. Jesus on the cross is where the justice and the mercy of God collided in a person and it took his life. Psalm 88. Let me just read a couple of passages. Your fierce anger has overwhelmed me. Your terrors have paralyzed me. They swirl around me like floodwaters all day long. This psalm could almost picture, gives us a description of almost what Moses was experiencing on that mountain. But what we learn is actually that was Jesus' own voice speaking through the psalms of what he experienced as he stood in the breach. They swirl around me. Your terrors have paralyzed me. I cry out to you, God, and darkness is my only friend. That is where Jesus stood for his people, for you. And see, friends, every time that you trade the eternal glory of God for a quick dopamine hit, it's like you're building your own little calf and saying, God isn't enough. We need this. And while you're doing that and thinking, I'm feeling better, what has happened up on the mountain is Jesus stood in the gap, and that has saved your life. When we fail, God is faithful. He never breaks his promises. One last passage, Ezekiel 22, verses 30 to 31. God says, I looked for someone among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it. But I found no one. So I will pour out my wrath on them and consume them with my fiery anger, bringing down on their own heads all they have done. You see, every one of us, we're like the Israelites, we're like Aaron, we're continually building these idols that we serve in our life. We're trading the glories of God that he has promised us, our eternal inheritance, for cotton candy that melts as soon as you touch it. And what, and, and it, it's sin against God. Every one of us deserves that displeasure, that wrath, that judgment of God to come down on us. We are where the Israelites were. And the question is, who is standing in the gap for you? Because when that list, of all the ways that you've fallen short and all the angers and grudges you're keeping in your heart and the secret addictions and vices 
and all of those sins is brought into the light of God, who will stand in the gap for you? Or will there be no one? Because make no mistake, no sin goes unanswered. No failure slips through the cracks. God demands an answer for everything. And so who will stand in the gap for you? Or will you be left to face it all by yourself? Who will step in before you? And look at that list of sin when you feel more exposed than you've ever felt and say, his sin is mine. Her sin is mine. That's what it means to trust Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. Is say, Jesus, I need you to stand before me. Jesus, I can't handle it. I deserve this. I'm a, I am so screwed up. I need you. And when you have that simple faith that a child can have in Jesus, that looks to Jesus and say, he is mine, I need him, that links you into Christ so that his roots hook into your heart and it will never let you go. You are brought in to those unbreakable promises of God. Promises to love you no matter how much it hurts, even if it kills him. The safest place that you can stand is behind the promises of God. And so who is standing in the gap for you? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would Father, we can only scratch the surface at the glory of this passage, but we pray that through the power of your Spirit, you would press it onto our hearts like never before to show us the incredible love that God has for sinners. You don't ignore our sin. You don't sweep it under the rug. You deal with it every last drop. But you offer to let Jesus have it placed on him every last drop. Father, transform our lives. Show us how deep the Father's love is for us. Show us how, when we hear those accusing voices of our failures, that we would realize that that is the voice of Satan that is pulling us from looking towards the cross. And help us to live as your people who are loved and been redeemed by Christ. We pray this all in his name. Amen. And each week we have our confession, which is that opportunity you get to be honest before God. And when you're standing in the shadow of Christ, you have nothing to fear with what you say because he is protecting you. He will never let you go. And so you can open up and let the light of Jesus shine into your deepest sins and darkest places so that he can deal with them and heal you. I'm going to read this prayer of confession and then let you take a few moments to pray silently. Loving God, you graciously... Read the wrong part, here we go. Gracious God, our sins are too heavy to carry too real to hide, and too deep to undo. Forgive what our lips tremble to name, what our hearts can no longer bear, and what has become for us a consuming fire of judgment. Set us free from a past that we cannot change, 
Open us to a future in which we can be changed. And grant us grace to grow more and more in your likeness and image. Through Jesus Christ, the light of the world.